Well, our session this evening is entitled, Taking Every Thought Captive. Taking Every Thought Captive. Uh, Obviously, that immediately resounds as a very, very important idea. We are familiar with this from the wording of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It seems like it's a, a natural thing to do for us as Christians that we must take our thoughts captive and make them obedient to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And yet we know that in our own lives, that is, a, a, that is easier said than done. And certainly when we look around, we see that even among professing Christians, there is a lot of thinking today that is not submissive to the Lordship of Christ. Just this past week, for example, Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, sent out this tweet related to a video clip from Stephen Colbert and his night show. On that video clip, Stephen Colbert, and you probably didn't know this, but Stephen Colbert claims to be a Christian, a Catholic, and uh, in that video clip proceeded to explain, to summarize his own understanding of faith. And basically, he made a joke about Jesus, and then he went on to say that his faith is basically summarized by trying to be sacrificial and give his life in some way to the benefit of others. Well, I don't watch Stephen Colbert that much. I watched enough video clips and little montages of him to know that uh, he is no Christian. And yet, Tim Keller, in his tweet, said this regarding Stephen Colbert's testimony. He said, quote, This is a brilliant example of how to be a Christian in the public square. Notice the witness, but in a form that the culture can handle. We should desire to have more Christians in these spaces and give them grace as they operate. Now, as I said, Stephen Colbert is at best a nominal Catholic, liberal, certainly supports abortion, and certainly normalizes sin and ridicules righteousness. And here you have Tim Keller, one of the leading voices in evangelicalism, calling Stephen Colbert a great example of a Christian witness. That is what we see happening in society around us in the church. And certainly, if anything, the last two years have shown that this is happening on a very, very broad scale. We saw a year and a half ago how many evangelicals openly aligned themselves with the corrupt, immoral, racist movement called BLM. We see how there's a constant drip of compromise of many within the church to the LGBTQ movement. We find today that Christians themselves are wondering whether it's okay to use preferred pronouns for others or even for themselves. All of this indicates one massive problem. It is the failure to take all of our thinking and make it submission, submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so the text that we have before us is of vital importance for us as we consider the mind, as we consider how to think Christianly, how to think biblically, and how to protect ourselves against the onslaught of secularism and the influence of the culture. Let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-6. to Here the Apostle Paul writes these words, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. 
Now before we talk about the implications this verse has for our thinking, it's important to understand the context of these words and Paul's intent for them as he wrote to the church in Corinth. Now Paul had two primary reasons in writing 2 Corinthians. He had several other reasons as well, but if you look at the two primary reasons he had, they were these. First, he wrote to the Corinthian church to express profound relief that the Corinthians had repented of, a, of, of disobedience that they had shown in the months and the year prior to that with respect to some sin within the congregation. Paul writes 2 Corinthians in part to express this relief, this thankfulness that repentance over that sin has finally come. But he also writes this letter to the Corinthians, the second one, to deal with a, an ongoing problem that still remained, and that was the influence of false apostles. Some within the church were still held by the sway of these imposters, these false teachings. When we look at the letter then in, in, in its, its whole, we could break up the letter in, in these three parts. The first part, chapters 1 to 7 of 2 Corinthians, focus on character, Paul's character. Paul as a, a minister of the gospel, a minister of the new covenant, chapters 1 through 7. We have a, a small section right in the middle, chapters 8 and 9, which deal with some very important teaching on the concept of giving. Paul was, was uh, undertaking this effort to collect funds from the Gentile churches to bring back to Jerusalem to help the church there, that, the church that was dealing with a lot of issues of, of poverty. But then in the final section, chapters 10 to 13, Paul focuses on his credentials. Paul deals with that segment within the Corinthian church that had come under the influence of these false apostles. And so, in chapters 10, 11, and 12, and 13, you'll note that Paul's words are very defensive. And it's not because he's defending himself simply for his own honor's sake. He is defending himself because the truth is at stake. The knowledge of God is at stake. The, the essence of the gospel is at stake. And our section that we are looking at this evening actually comes right at the beginning of chapter 10, right as the start of this final section as Paul defends his credentials as an apostle and as he attacks the imposters. Now, who were these false apostles? What do we know about them? Well, one of the comments that comes quite directly at them is found in chapter 11, verse 13, where the apostle Paul describes them this way. He says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Now, we don't have time to go through a very detailed sketch of these false apostles, but several characteristics stand out to us if we survey chapters 10 through 13, and it's this. First of all, these false apostles had some kind of Jewish connection. You can look at chapter 11, verse 22, where Paul has to compare himself with them because they elevated their own Jewish status. Secondly, they claimed, these false apostles did, that they were anointed and appointed directly by Jesus himself. Moreover, we know that they scorned Paul. They ridiculed, ridiculed Paul and, and instead made much of themselves among the Corinthians. They exalted themselves. We also find these clues in chapters 10 through 13 that these false apostles praised rhetorical eloquence and claimed to have special revelations from God. So, so these are the false apostles. These are not just erring brothers. These are not just immature members of the church. These are not those who just have it wrong on a few instances or on a few issues. These are false apostles. These are, these are imposters. These are heretics. These are those who have corrupted the truth. Now, as Paul begins this section in chapter 10, notice how he starts 
this section on his credentials. He says this, beginning in verse 1. He says, now, I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I suppose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. Now basically what we find here in these verses is that these false apostles had accused Paul of two things in particular. First of all, they accused Paul of being inconsistent. Verse 1 in particular, chapter 10. Paul uses sarcasm here. And they accuse Paul of this kind of inconsistency, that when he's far away under the protection of some great distance, he is this bold lion, but in person, he is very fragile. That's what the imposter said. Secondly, they accused him of worldliness. They accused him that he walked, he lived his life according to the flesh. In other words, they accused Paul as, as living his life using unspiritual human means and methods of ministry. He was trying to do God's things in man's way. And the apostle said, you have to, the false apostle said, hey, you have to reject Paul. He's earthly. As earthly means, earthly methods. D.A. Carson summarizes the clash between these apostles and Paul with these words. He writes, quote, The clash between Paul and the intruders was a clash of worldviews. Paul's worldview was shaped by the gospel. Theirs took its form from what was praised in the segments of society whose honor they cherished. Now, in response to the damage being done by these false apostles in the church, Paul takes it upon himself here to describe his approach to the truth, to set the record straight about how he proclaims and defends the truth. And this is going to be very important because it's going to serve in our own lives as a paradigm for us in dealing with falsehood and truth. And as we look at these verses, verses 3 to 6, we're going to break it up into two parts. We're going to organize our thoughts, first of all, around this this idea that we find in verses 3 and 4, where Paul is going to summarize his defense of the truth. He's going to take these two first verses in our section, and he's going to summarize in in big picture way his own defense and, and, and proclamation of the truth. And then secondly... In the second two verses, the second half of our text, we'll see Paul's defense of the truth specified. He's going to go into detail. And he's going to provide, as we'll see, a a three-stage approach that he has with respect to falsehood. Now, what's going to be very important to note as we get into this text, as you probably noted already as I read it, is that this text is filled with military terminology. Paul is going to draw from the world of battle, of waging war. He's going to bring in that imagery into his assertions in order to underscore one very important reason, one very important thought, and it's this. This is a life and death matter. It is so important that we must liken the battle between truth and error to a life and death battle on the battlefield. Now, it's not the only place where Paul does this. In fact, one of Paul's most common metaphors to describe the Christian life is the metaphor of of warfare, of being a soldier. And we won't go through all of these texts, but I'll just hold one of them up Uh, to you this evening to to, to get us thinking in these terms, and that's from from Ephesians chapter 6. You're familiar with this, and and Paul goes through this lengthy discussion of the whole armor of God in chapter 6 of Ephesians from verse 10 to 18. Let me just read verses 11 and 12. Paul says this, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm 
against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, we are so familiar with that text that we sometimes fail to grasp the solemnity that is connected with them. This is the life which we live. We live in a battle zone. We don't live in a demilitarized zone. There is constant struggle taking place. And Paul exhorts us in Ephesians, as he does here, to understand the seriousness of the battle. And as we're going to see tonight, that battle rages primarily in our minds. Now, let's look at the first of these principles that uh, Paul gives us here in this text. First of all, in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, verses 3 and 4, we're going to see Paul's defense of truth summarized. Paul's defense of truth summarized. He begins with verse 3, he says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Now notice if you go back to verse 2, Paul cites the false apostles as claiming that Paul and his associates, his fellow ministers, walked according to the flesh. Paul says now, however, he, he, he uses their words in a slightly different way. He, he changes the wording here by switching out the prepositions. And, and he acknowledges something here. He says... For though we do walk in the flesh. And that's different from what the false apostle said. The false apostle said that Paul walked according to the flesh. Paul says, no, we walk in the flesh. And by doing that, Paul acknowledges one very important reality when it comes to fighting for the truth. It's the reality of of the necessity of humility. Paul begins by saying, we walk in the flesh. And that phrase points specifically to Paul's awareness of his earthly existence. He was a man. He was an ordinary man. He walked in the flesh. And that points us back, for example, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul says this in in verses 7 to 10. He says this, But we have this treasure, this ministry of the gospel, in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in our body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. He goes on in verse 16 to say, therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Paul begins here with an acknowledgement of humility, and and this is really where it begins. Paul did not preach himself. In the defense and proclamation of the truth, it is not about ourselves. And even in that process of defending and proclaiming the truth, there will be suffering. There will be weakness. There will be forsakenness. There there will be this feeling of affliction and, and being crushed. That is the reality, and Paul does not deny it. But notice what he says. Though he walks in the flesh, he says at the second part of in the second part of verse three, he says, We do not war according to the flesh. Well, Paul's existence was indeed earthly. His outer man was indeed decaying. His proclamation and defense of the truth was not earthly. It was supernatural. He uses the term to war here. He says we do not war. And now we have the start of this military terminology. The term to war here means to engage in conflict, to wage, to fight, to battle. 
And he says that he battles, he wages war, not according to the flesh. In other words, not using the world's arsenals. Not employing the means and methods of the natural man. Of of human logic. Of what seems right to man. Of man's own intuition. Of his gut feeling. Paul says, no, in the defense and proclamation of the truth, in thinking God's thoughts after him, and, and in proclaiming those thoughts to others, it's not about intuition. It's not about what appeals and what is consistent with human reasoning. It is about divine methods. It is about a divine means. It is about a divine message. It is not according to the flesh. He, he takes this even further in verse 4. Look there where, where Paul says this. He says in verse 4, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. The word weapon here refers to an instrument designed to make ready for military engagement. You see, Paul continuing this analogy, and he says these weapons that he employs are not of the flesh. They're not of this world. They're not originating in human ingenuity and, 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 and uh, human philosophy, but they're divinely powerful. They originate in God, and they possess God's strength, and they accomplish God's purposes. And he says they are effective for, divinely powerful for, the destruction, the dismantling of fortresses. And that word for fortress refers to a a strong military installation that would most often be located at the the top of a hill. In fact, what's interesting to note here is that the Corinthians would have immediately caught this because there in in Corinth was one of the most famous, formidable acropolises in all of Greece. It's called the Acrocorinth. The city of Corinth was in the, 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 the lands, the flat lands below, but up in this very significant mountain, there was a, a fortress. And so the people would, would live and, and have their have their, their, their daily lives in the lower part of the city, at the foot of the mountain, in the shadow of this strong fortress. But if ever there was a threat, they would escape up the hill, through the gates, into this very, very formidable fortress. You can see it even today. The ruins of the city are at the foot of the mountain, and then up at the top of that, that rock that juts out of the earth, there is still the remains of a Roman fortress. But of course, Paul was not talking about the destruction of physical fortresses. He's not talking about storming the gates of the Acrocorinth. He's talking about something much more subtle. He is using these not-of-the-flesh weapons against something very particular. Now, what kind of weapons did he use? Now, he doesn't say, but we can tell from earlier writings in his letter what these weapons were. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2.14, Paul speaks of manifesting the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ. That's a weapon right there, the knowledge of Christ. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 1 to 6, You see words like the Word of God, words like truth, the gospel, the knowledge of the glory of God. These are the the not-of-the-flesh weapons that Paul is referring to here. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 7, he talks about the word of truth. He he talks about the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and, and for the left. And these are the weapons he uses and he, he, he states these are the weapons that are divinely powerful for the destruction of these fortresses. They are effective. We need not doubt. We can have confidence that these weapons work. 
One commentator writes this in response to Paul's assertion. He says, quote, This constitutes an admonition to the church and particularly to her leaders. For the temptation is ever present to meet the challenge of the world, which is under the sway of the evil one, with the carnal weapons of this world, with human wisdom and philosophy, with the attractions of secular entertainment, with the display of massive organization. Not only do such weapons fail to make an impression on the strongholds of Satan, but a secularized church is a church which, having adopted the standards of the world, has ceased to fight and is herself overshadowed by the powers of darkness. He goes on to say this, but this verse, verse 4, also constitutes a promise to the church. For it is constantly true that those weapons with which the Holy Spirit has supplied her, that they are divinely powerful for the destruction of these very strongholds. When engaging the enemy with these weapons, the church is assured of victory. So Paul's summary definition here is that he wages war. He wages war not according to earthly means and methods, but he wages war according to divinely powerful weaponry, divinely powerful means and methods that are able to destroy even the greatest of intellectual outposts. But now let's look at how he describes this more specifically. Verses 5 and 6 give us a more specified understanding of Paul's destruction of these strongholds. And it is from verses four and five, uh, 5 and 6 in particular that, that give us insight as to how this works at a micro level, even among ourselves, as we deal with the thoughts that come into our minds from within and from without. After summarizing that approach, it's interesting to know what we see here in verses 5 and 6 is a three-stage process. Verses 5 and 6 give us a three-stage process for dealing with error and replacing error with truth. That was the big need in the Corinthian church. They had come under the influence of these false teachers. Error abounded among some. It needed to be cast away and replaced with truth. And so Paul explains his ministry here, and this ministry is all about that. Three stages. First of all, it's about destroying speculations in the first half of verse 5. Secondly, the second of the three stages is about taking thoughts captive. And we'll see that in the second half of verse 5 as well. And then the third stage is that of punishing Resistance, verse 6. Now, again, these, these three stages, this terminology is militaristic. Paul is reaching from the world of, of warfare and is bringing it in as a helpful analogy to explain how to root out error and replace it with the truth. Let's look at each of these three stages. First of all, in the first half of verse 5. Paul writes this, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Here the word destroying has the idea of of tearing down, of completely demolishing. And again, it it, it brings us to a, a military picture here. And in this stage, it is about laying siege to a city so as to conquer it and to dismantle and demolish everything in it. Now, that was a very common act in, in Roman warfare. As the Romans would destroy their opponents, it was very important to destroy their, their cities so that there would be nothing left for any opponent to build a resistance. They would come and lay siege against a city. 
using advanced battering rams in order to attack the walls, in order to bring down the towers, in order to gain entrance, and then to tear down all the walls. And Paul says, this is what we do. We are, he says, we are destroying. And and now notice what we destroy. Two things are described here. First, we're destroying speculations. We are destroying speculations. We are laying siege to speculations. What is is a speculation? The the term for speculation is the term logismos. It, It comes from that logic idea. A speculation is the product of a cognitive process, of, of reasoning, of, of logical deduction. And Paul says we're laying siege to these things. These speculations refer to calculations, reasoning, plans, arguments. And here it has a negative idea. It, it has the idea of, of a sophistry, this kind of deception, this arrogance And he goes on in in the next part of the verse even to describe it in these words as every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. This speaks of the tower. This speaks of that that tower that was set up in, in order to be able to protect the city. Here it is figurative. It's the tower set up to protect a mindset, to protect a worldview. And Paul says, we are laying siege and destroying these kinds of of things. And notice, notice that Paul doesn't just say we are destroying some speculations or some things raised up against the knowledge of God. He is saying we are destroying everything that is raised up against the knowledge of God. There is no neutral third party. You're either for or against. Your mindset either works in loyalty and subjection to the knowledge of God, or it doesn't. You either have thoughts that, that, that run and flow confluently with the things of God or not. And Paul says, we are laying siege and destroying anything that raises itself up in arrogance against the knowledge of God. So important to consider that. As Philip Hughes in his commentary notes, this metaphor emphasizes the defiant and mutinous nature of sin. Sinful man does not wish to know God. He wishes himself to be the self-sufficient center of his universe. And Paul says, we're going exactly after that. We're going exactly after all of those thoughts that express this kind of mentality. D.A. Carson writes, this is why every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God is so desperately serious and deeply tied into the fountainhead of sin in our lives. We cannot know God from a position of arrogance and cynicism. For not only are such attitudes fundamentally antithetical to our creaturely dependence, they are also foundationally opposed to the only knowledge of God open to poor sinners, Jesus Christ crucified. Paul says, we lay hold of, we besiege, we conquer. And that is what we must understand with respect to our own responsibilities with every thought that comes into our minds, every thought that we entertain, every thought that has any space within our attention. We must seek out we must lay siege to and we must destroy those speculations, that arrogant thinking, that self-centered thinking that exists contrary to the knowledge of God. That is the battle. That is stage one. But he goes on now to talk about stage two. Stage two is described in the second half of verse He says this, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now you can follow the imagery here. In the first stage, it was about going after the walls of laying siege to the city, destroying the walls, destroying the strongholds, the towers. 
But now there's occupants in that city. And what do you do with them? And Paul says in stage two, you take them captive. You take them captive. You don't just break down the walls, turn around, go home and think you've won. You take them captive. You don't just identify them as as enemies. You you take them captive. And Paul's wording here is is to express the idea of, of taking someone as a prisoner of war. It's referring to that practice of forced subjugation of, of, of prisoners to a conquering captain. But again, this is not a forced subjugation of actual people. Notice what this, this submission focuses on. It, it's focused on ideas. He says in verse 5, we are taking every thought captive. Notice once again that it's Every thought, not just some, not just religious thoughts, not just Sunday thoughts, not just public thoughts, but all thoughts. He says, we are taking them captive. What is a thought? The word Paul uses here refers to that which one has in mind as a product of an intellectual process. So our minds are constantly filled with thoughts. Thoughts about What we're going to eat when we get home tonight. Thoughts about the freeway. Thoughts about work today. Thoughts about the person sitting next to us. Thoughts about the long-winded preacher. And so on and so forth. All kinds of thoughts. Our minds are filled with these thoughts. And Paul says, we are taking them captive. And we are forcing their submission to someone. And that someone is Christ. The captain. Christ the Lord. He's saying, and we are making them obedient. We are making them enter a state of compliance. Again, this is what the Romans would do in their warfare. They would attack a city, destroy the walls, make sure no walls could be rebuilt, make sure the towers were gone. And then they would take the soldiers prisoner and march them all the way back and make them kneel before the emperor. This is what we must do, Paul says, with our thoughts. This is the battle that rages. It is a a battle that requires conquest and it requires submission. Every thought is to be brought into compliance with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. John Calvin put it this way. He said, hence, we must set out with this. That he who is wise must become a fool. That is, we must give up our own understanding and renounce the wisdom of the flesh. And thus we must present our minds to Christ empty that he may fill them. And this is what it means to think thoughts after God. And this is the great challenge of the Christian life. In fact, the whole process of sanctification, of practical sanctification, daily progressive sanctification revolves on this center of taking thoughts captive and making them obedient to Jesus Christ. If you're doing that, you're growing. If you're failing to do that, if you don't ever think of that, your growth is minimal at best. But there is a third stage here, and it is important as well, and it is found in verse 6. It is the stage of punishing resistance. Notice verse 6. He says this, and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. The word ready, again, draws from the world of war. It describes a military alertness, the kind of alertness that was necessary to, to monitor that land that had been subdued. The, the fortresses had been destroyed, the soldiers had been taken captive, but nonetheless, there had to be the vigilance to monitor the land to make sure there would be no uprising. There would be no insubordination. That was crucial 
to effectiveness in war. And Paul draws from that and says, this is what must also happen in our thinking, in our battle against error, in our defense and proclamation of the truth. We must be ready. He says we must be ready to punish, to inflict appropriate penalty for a wrong done. And what is the wrong done? He calls it disobedience. Disobedience. That refusal to continue to bend the knee. The refusal to continue to conform to the standard, to acknowledge lordship. And Paul says we are punishing that disobedience. Now, in the Corinthian context, this meant that Paul said, look, uh, we'll be gracious. We'll give you time. But there's going to come a time when, obe- when, when, when disobedience must be punished. And it's an undoubted reference to some form of, of church discipline of, of any who would continue to go along with the error of the false teachers. And it reminds us of a very, very important reality. Look, outside the church, you are free to to believe error. Outside the church, you are free to to let your minds be filled with error. Now, it is to your eternal destiny that, that we would not want that. But that's what it is outside in the world. But in the church, you are not free to affirm error. In the church... You you are not free to embrace and promote falsehood. That act is the act of insubordination, not to the church itself, not to the people of the church. It is an act of insubordination to the Lord of the Scriptures Himself. You're not free to believe in error among Christ's people. And thank God for that, that there is a church, there are God's people who are there to help, who are there to, like Paul even, to point out the error and to, 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 to challenge, to, to show, and then to bring along toward the truth. Now, how should we respond to this? As we draw our thoughts to a close this evening, what are some lessons to learn from Paul's interaction with the Corinthians over these false apostles? Number one. Accept the fact that the most important battle in your life is the battle raging in your mind. It's not the battle out at work. It's not even the battle in your home. It's not the battle on the computer or on the cell phone. It's the battle in the mind. It's the battle over your thoughts. And the most reliable indicator of your spiritual state of the state of your soul, will be the state of your thinking. How are you thinking? What are you thinking? Is it according to the flesh? Or is it according to the knowledge of God? And again, notice Paul's preferred analogy to describe the Christian life. It is, it is warfare. It is warfare. And that means you, you must abandon the intellectual laziness that comes from thinking that, that you live, you dwell, you think in a demilitarized zone. You don't. You cannot afford to drop your vigilance. You cannot afford those hours during the day or even those minutes where you just say, okay, now it's me time. Now I can just let my mind wander where I want. No, there's a battle raging. This is what the Christian life is all about. You must embrace that reality, and you must pursue vigilance. Number two, recognize that the center of gravity in each battle is the Lordship of Christ. The center of of gravity in each battle is the Lordship of Christ. It's not your pleasure. It's not your physical well-being. The center of the battle is the Lordship of Christ. And and this brings us to Abraham Kuyper's most famous saying when he said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. 
It belongs to Him. You were bought with a price. Your body is not your own. Your mind is not your own. It is not about you. It is about the Lordship of Christ. And the sooner that you come to terms with that and submit to that reality, embrace that reality, the more you will enter into the joy of the Christian life. And therefore, if there is a thought, if there is a line of reasoning that does not harmonize with the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord, it is error and must be rejected. And this is the challenge. You must always ask yourself, how does this thought, if I'm going to entertain it, if I'm going to dwell upon it, if I'm going to let it fill my mind and stew on it as I drive or as I lay on my bed or as I watch TV or, 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 or engage in social media interaction, ask yourself, how does this thought harmonize and, 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 and flow confluently with the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Now, there are many ways that our thoughts can, even in the midst of relaxation, in the midst of enjoying hobbies, in the midst of enjoying friends and family and food. All of those things can be made, all of those thoughts that attend those events and those experiences can be made to express, to uphold the Lordship of Christ. But the question is, are they in your life? And that is the great question to ask. And not only in just those mundane things, but even in the big issues of life that happen to you, even outside of the church from Monday to Saturday. For example, this is why issues like pronouns are not matters of indifference. Think of that. And, and I've interacted with some Christians who say, you know what, it's okay to use the person's preferred pronoun. Really? That pronoun is making a statement. It's acknowledging a reality. So here's the question. Does that pronoun acknowledge reality according to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Or is it acknowledging a fake reality that has raised itself up against the knowledge of God? That is a big issue. And Jesus Christ has lordship even over that. If not in their lives, certainly in ours. We must acknowledge that, recognize that, and say, I cannot use that pronoun. I'll call you by something else. But God has created male and female. And that is a divine reality that I cannot ignore. Jesus Christ is Lord over my thoughts. Or take... Stephen Colbert's supposed profession of faith. Jesus Christ is Lord over how we describe that to others. We do not have the freedom to make it look all nice and cozy to the world and, and to comfy up to the unbeliever, unbelievers around us. We must be truthful in love, having concern for the eternal destiny of souls, but Jesus Christ has lordship over those issues. Francis Schaeffer said this, it is not too strong to say that we are at war. And there are no neutral parties in the struggle. One either confesses that God is the final authority, or one confesses that Caesar is Lord, or the culture is Lord. Blaymeyers, Myers, in his book, written 60 years ago, describes those who are fence-sitters, who fail to acknowledge the lordship of Christ over certain issues, this, he describes them th this way. He says, they are past masters, experts, at fence-sitting. Indeed, many of them, devoted as they are to liberal notions of broad-mindedness and toleration, have rationalized their ignorance into comforting conviction that fence-sitting is preeminently the posture of the charitable Christian leader. We're to sit on the fence and just say, well, I don't know what the Bible, I don't think it has anything to say about this. I'll, I'll just be quiet. I'll just go along with, with things. No, Jesus Christ has lordship over every square inch. Number three, 
implement Paul's three-stage method of warfare. As you consider the battle that rages, this is what it's all about. He had to do this in the Thessalonian church for the sake of the Thessalonians, and he gives us this paradigm for us. This is what we do when there's error floating around in our minds. First, we must destroy speculations. We must attack ruthlessly any thought that sets itself up against God's revealed Word. We, we cannot relate to them indifferently. The more we relate to them indifferently, the more they grow, and the more they sow the, the seeds of despair in our own lives. Number two, in the place of that rebellious thought, foster a new thought that expresses the lordship of Christ over that area of life. You, you take captive the thought, and it doesn't want to bend the knee, Get rid of it. And then you replace it with the thought that bends the knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So you think of it. Your self-pity. Woe is me. Poor me. All right. Stage one. Has that thought set itself up against the, the knowledge of God? Attack it. Number two. If it doesn't submit to the Lordship of Christ, if it doesn't reflect reality as God has described it in His Word, get rid of it and in its place, in the place of self-pity, what do you put? Humility. You put the opposite there. The, the reality of who you are according to God's Word. And then you lead it to this third stage. Be vigilant for subtle movements toward rebellion. And you know how this works. It can work well for a couple of days, and then you let your guard down, you lose vigilance, and then all of a sudden, boom, you're right back at it. Your mind is full of the thoughts that you worked so hard to destroy. You must maintain vigilance. And so you must punish any form of resistance to the Lordship of Christ that creeps up in your thinking. Implement Paul's three-stage strategy. And this applies to anything such as self-pity, lust, anger, resentment, envy, jealousy. You go through the list, and every time you struggle with those things, they come into your minds, you go through this list. You destroy speculations, you take thoughts captive, and you punish resistance. Number four. Pay attention to what you take in. The Corinthian problem was the problem of giving intellectual attention to the so-called wisdom of these false apostles. Now, at a personal level, at an individual level, we can do that too. By exposing our minds needlessly to the wisdom philosophers of this world, we must do as the psalmist did in Psalm 101 verse 3 when he said, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. And part of this battle is to control what we take in. It's like the saying goes, G-I-G-O, garbage in, garbage out. And if you want to have victory over certain temptations, and yet you're constantly swimming in the cesspool of those temptations, you can understand what's going to come out of you. Pay attention to what you take in. Guard your borders. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. Or Psalm 119, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Don't expect to win the battles of your mind if you know little of Christ, but much of the world. That's got to change. D.A. Carson says, the idea in this verse is not simply that Christ so takes a hold of people that they can think holy thoughts. That is true, of course, Philippians 4 verse 8 but that their whole mental structures, their plans and their schemes are taken over and transformed as they come into a new allegiance. And that new allegiance is all about sub submitting your mind, 
filling your mind with the truth of the knowledge of God. And finally, number five, apply God's word to all of life. This is key. To wage good warfare requires not just a good defense, but a good offense as well. And, and what, what am I speaking of here with this good offense? It means cultivating proactively a, a mindset that considers all aspects of life Work, schooling, family, friends, relationships, politics, finances, your retirement, whatever it be, a healthy approach is to look at all of those proactively through the lens of the Lordship of Christ as it is expressed in the Scriptures. So think of of saving money, for example, but only... Through the Lordship of Christ. Think of of working to to move up and get a promotion. But only as it relates to and and upholds the, the Lordship of Christ. Think about getting married, but only if your choice of a spouse and the, the, the method to, to convince her is according to the Lordship of Christ. You gotta think through that proactively. Always be asking this question, can I, can I reconcile this, this, this matter of thought, this process of, of reasoning? Can I, can I reconcile where it's going with who Jesus Christ is? And the more you do this, the more you progress in this, is the more that you will experience what true sanctification is all about. Because as you do this, think through this carefully. As you do this, what's happening to your mind? As you're taking all these thoughts, all these areas of thinking, all this way of reasoning, you're submitting it to the Lordship of Christ, your whole mind is being conformed to the image of Christ's mind. And that is the goal of sanctification. Again, Francis Schaeffer said this, quote, True spirituality covers all of reality. There are things the Bible tells us are absolutes, absolutes which are sinful, which do not conform to the character of God. But aside from these, the Lordship of Christ covers all of life and all of life equally. It is not only that true spirituality covers all of life, but it covers all parts of the spectrum of life equally. In this sense, there is nothing concerning reality that is not spiritual. This is so very important, men, in our growth as followers of Jesus Christ, that when we walk out this door, we cannot shut off our minds, we cannot shut off what we learn here, but when we walk out these doors, that's where the battle begins, and that's where your task really kicks into high gear. So that as you drive home tonight and all the way to the point where your eyes close, your prayer is, Lord, conform my mind to the mind of Christ so that I can think the way He thinks and that all areas of my life will be subject to His Lordship and glory. Now, is that your desire? I hope so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this text that is sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides between thoughts and intents, divides between joints and marrow. It cuts to the very heart of our need. We pray that we would not just be hearers of this word, that Paul's words that have resounded tonight would not just be entertained for a moment. Rather, that your spirit would take these words and press them deeply. And that as we go from here tonight, as we start tomorrow, as we go through the various experiences that you will bring about in our lives, that you would not let these words pass from us, but would rather make them a part of our 
very fiber of thinking. And we ask this not in order to pat ourselves on the back and and to live by some kind of performance Christianity. We ask this because we know that this is what glorifies and pleases you. We know this is the key to true joy. Because by it we are conformed to the image of Christ and there is nothing, no other motive in life that is so compelling and so rewarding than that. Father, we pray all of these things in His name, Jesus our Lord. Amen.